Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, July 7th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Could lead poisoning have led to the fall of Rome? The Australian craft brewery using algae to offset their carbon emissions. And Moderna has started human trials of their mRNA flu vaccine. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. There have been books upon books written about the fall of Rome. Explanations for the fall typically include things like military overspending and failures, the rise of eastern empires, economic troubles including an over-reliance on slave labor, government corruption, the spread of new ideas shaking the Romans' long-held values. But there's another possible theory. And it's one that reminds me a bit of the newer findings that three U.S. presidents in the mid-19th century probably died due to the contaminated water supply at the White House. Because this, too, is a kind of slow-burn quasi-infrastructure issue that they didn't exactly understand at the time, and which had potentially even bigger ramifications than the White House's water. It's a theory that's been around for a while, but is getting kicked around again thanks to a new video from PBS's Reactions series on YouTube, produced by the American Chemical Society. The theory goes that, yes, government corruption did play a crucial role in the fall of the Roman Empire, specifically corrupt and unstable emperors. Emperors who may have been unstable due to lead poisoning. Host Samantha Jones explains in the reactions video that lead was everywhere in Rome, so the likelihood that the emperor's brains and many other people's brains were being addled by lead poisoning is fairly high. And just as a refresher on some of the strange alleged behavior from some of the emperors, Caligula was famously perverse, being quite a bit too close to his sisters, and also he appointed his horse as a priest. Now, while Nero didn't actually play his fiddle as Rome burned, he did regularly dress up in the skins of wild animals and run around assaulting people. Claudius is described as having disturbed speech patterns, weak limbs, tremors, and being prone to inappropriate outbursts of laughter or anger. Caracalla was known for killing friends ruthlessly and allegedly even killing a hundred boars in one day with his bare hands. But historians say he was probably perfectly sane, just super brutal. Further examples abound, but Vox points out that ancient historians would often curry favor with new emperors by slandering the previous ones, so we can't really trust these stories completely. Though Reactions host Samantha Jones does note that even if only 10% of the outrageous stories are true, that's still pretty indicative of something going on. And maybe it could have been the result of a stroke, a tumor, a traumatic brain injury, or something else, but their behavior also could have been the result of lead poisoning. Like I said, lead was everywhere in ancient Europe. It was used to make pipes, pots, and utensils, and even to line coffins. That makes sense because lead is corrosion-resistant, has a low melting point, and is highly malleable. It's super useful. But one thing that we know now that the Romans didn't is that it's also super toxic. Quoting Ars Technica, Common symptoms of lead poisoning include anemia, nerve disorders, memory loss, inability to concentrate, and even infertility. Lead exposure may also be a factor in malaria, rickets, gout, and periodontal disease. Since 1943, scientists have known that lead can have adverse effects on neurological development in children, leading to behavioral problems and lowered intelligence. And that's because it can easily replace calcium. 
Calcium is how neurons in the brain communicate, and if lead replaces it, there's either too little communication among neurons or too much. This can cause erratic mood swings or difficulty processing information, for instance. End quote. And here's the thing. Romans weren't just exposed to lead because it was in the pipes that their water ran through, or the pots that they cooked their food in, or the utensils that they used to shovel the food in their mouths, although, you know, none of that was good, but they also used lead acetate as a sweetener. Quoting io9, Roman winemakers found that boiling of unfermented grape juice created a sweeter liquid known as defrutum, or sapa. Defrutum is created by boiling off half the volume of wine, while sapa is the result of a reduction to one-third the original volume of wine. Romans used the sweeter liquids to improve the flavor of existing foods, preserve fruit, and to preserve food for Roman soldiers. The boiling process involved long hours and high temperatures, causing lead to seep out of the container, inadvertently artificially sweetening the sapa. The sweet taste is due to acetic acid in the wine converting to its hydrolyzed form, acetate. Acetate ions combined with lead cations leached from the container, forming lead acetate. Winemakers chose lead containers over brass ones when they noticed the lead pots yielded a sweeter flavor. End quote. So this lead acetate, also called sugar of lead, was used in tons of dishes back then. In fact, a cookbook of the era calls for lead acetate in a hundred of its 450 recipes. But don't forget it was also used in wine, and as the reactions video points out, Roman leaders were drinking between 1 and 5 liters of wine per day. 1 to 5 liters of lead-laced wine per day. And you know, there's an important thing to remember here. The leaders, especially the emperors themselves, had access to much more wine and sweetened food than others. So while everyday Romans were exposed to lead as well, the emperors might have been ingesting the most of it, and hence possibly experiencing the most heightened effects from lead poisoning. But was lead poisoning really the cause of some of the emperors' strange and erratic behavior? Historians have been hotly debating this at least since 1983, when Jerome Riagu published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine about the diets of Roman emperors, showing that 19 out of 30 of them had a preference for sugar of lead. Now, because of all of the debates, there have also been a lot of attempts to prove it one way or another. Quoting from Ars Technica, In 2014, French researchers studied how the lead pipes used in the Roman aqueducts might have contaminated the water consumed by ancient Romans. Specifically, they measured concentrations of lead isotopes in sediment from the Tiber River and the Trojanic Harbor and compared those levels to the amount of lead isotopes found in ancient Roman pipes. While their estimates revealed that the water from those pipes could have had as much as 100 times more lead than spring water from the region, the team nonetheless concluded that these concentrations weren't likely to have caused serious health issues. The authors added that, in their opinion, Riagu's theory that lead poisoning led to the fall of the Roman Empire had been largely debunked. But there is some evidence that lead poisoning was an issue for the ancient Romans, even if it didn't directly contribute to the collapse of the empire. In a 2019 study, archaeologists examined several skeletons from London during the Roman era for signs of exposure to toxic levels of lead. The team sampled 30 thigh bones as well as 70 bones from the Iron Age as a control. They found that the Iron Age skeletons contained just 0.3 to 2.9 micrograms of lead per gram, whereas the ones from the Roman Empire had between 8 to 123 micrograms per gram. Those are sufficiently high levels to have caused widespread health effects, including hypertension, fertility issues, and subsequent population decline, kidney disease, neural damage, gout, and so forth. End quote. That's 400 times more lead in the skeletal remains from the Roman Empire versus those from the Iron Age. 
And those were skeletons from more everyday people, because the leaders were usually cremated. And I'll remind you again that the emperors were probably consuming much more sugar of lead than everyday people. Though, according to ours, archaeologist Janet Montgomery said that bones can absorb lead and other metals from the soil, so those high lead amounts could have been the result of post-burial contamination. It's hard to tell how much could have been from when the person was alive. But even for scientists and historians who agree that there may have been some level of lead poisoning happening in ancient Rome, they tend to disagree on the source. Quoting io9, It's certainly plausible, with most blaming lead pipes of the Roman aqueducts for poisoning and not sugar of lead. However, calcium carbonate would likely build up inside the pipes, creating a lining within that would prevent leaching of lead into the water supply. If lead poisoning did play a role on the fall of Rome, it did so as an artificial sweetener and not as an accidental additive to the water supply." That's the opinion of io9, but whatever the effect lead poisoning may or may not have had on ancient Roman emperors and the fall of the Roman Empire, I'm just glad we use it less and less these days. Although it's certainly not gone from all of our products or even all of our water supplies. I'll put a link in the show notes about cities here in the US that you may not have realized have lead or other contaminants in their drinking water. Although I don't think it's quite enough to be the sole cause of the fall of this republic. Every time a brewery ferments beer, CO2 is released into the atmosphere. Quite a bit, actually. Fermenting just one six-pack's worth of beer creates so much CO2 that it would take a tree two full days to absorb it, according to ABC Australia. So Young Henry's Brewery in Sydney has come up with a creative new way to capture that carbon dioxide. Algae. Algae is five times more effective at absorbing carbon than trees are, and according to Lean Labou from the University of Technology Sydney, which partnered with Young Henry's on the project, quote, one 400-liter bag can produce as much oxygen as one hectare of Australian bush, so it can actually clean up a lot and provide a lot of cleaner air, end quote. And Peter Ralph from the same climate change cluster, or C3, team at the University of Technology Sydney explained to the BBC, quote, Microalgae, or phytoplankton, are tiny photosynthetic plants. We can't see them by the human eye, but they're a fantastic biochemical factory that makes half the oxygen on the planet, end quote. And from Young Henry's Oscar McMahon, quote, Brewer's yeast eats sugar, creates CO2 and alcohol. Algae, or microalgae, eats CO2, creates more algae, and releases oxygen. So they become these yin and yang organisms that naturally balance each other out, end quote. So at the brewery, they capture the CO2 at the top of their fermenters and then feed it through a bioreactor that houses the microalgae. And I gotta say, these bioreactors look straight out of a sci-fi movie. They glow bright neon yellowy green that gets deeper in color as the algae feeds more and more on the carbon. I would not have thought they were real if I just saw a photo and not a video. Link in the show notes to check it out yourself. I mean, it literally looks like they captured Slimer, not CO2. But alright, so these bioreactors, while reducing carbon emissions in the brewery, are creating a bunch more algae. So what happens to all that algae? The brewery and C3 research team are still working on that, but hope that it will start going towards the production of bioplastics, garden products, animal feed, human supplements, or any of the numerous applications on the market or that are being explored around the world right now. But for now, Young Henry's is happy to be taking responsibility for their own carbon output as an independent company and hopes that they can lead by example, with these microalgae bioreactors maybe becoming a common sight outside many urban businesses. 
With some of the COVID-19 vaccines acting as a very long-anticipated proof of concept for mRNA technology, funders are finally backing research for using the technology for other vaccines. For example, last month, scientists published the results of a trial that showed the mRNA vaccine they developed yielded full protection from malaria in mice. Meanwhile, Moderna has been hard at work developing mRNA vaccines for HIV and the flu. Quoting the Washington Post, Currently, the most common influenza vaccine that's available in the United States is manufactured using an inactivated or killed virus and administered via a shot in the arm. The flu viruses for these vaccines are grown in chicken eggs or in cells inside a petri dish. The viruses are then killed or weakened, and the resulting proteins, the important ingredient in the vaccine, are purified. When the shot is administered, the immune system starts making antibodies against those proteins. But mRNA vaccines can teach the immune system to fight a virus without ever coming into contact with it, end quote. mRNA vaccines can also generate stronger immune responses than normal flu vaccine and be developed much more quickly, meaning that they could be developed later in the year. The current ones have about a six-month timeline, so global teams of scientists have to guess at which strains will be most prevalent far in advance. But an mRNA vaccine would take about a month, making the prediction about the strains to protect against much more accurate. And Moderna's plan is to combine the flu vaccine with the coronavirus one, so you will only need one annual boost, not multiple, if indeed the coronavirus vaccine needs to become a regular thing as well. While Moderna announced this morning that they have begun human trials, the new mRNA flu shots probably won't be ready for this year's flu season. Paul Duprex, director of the Center for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh, told the Washington Post in April that it will probably be a gradual rollout, with mRNA shots being available alongside traditional ones in the coming years. And Moderna is not the only one working on an mRNA flu shot. According to The Verge, Sanofi and Translate Bio also have trials ongoing, and Pfizer and BioNTech have plans to move forward with work they began on mRNA flu shots several years ago. As for Moderna's HIV vaccine, quoting Very Well Health, data suggests that immunizing people against HIV requires not only antibodies, but also targeting specific T-cells, which help coordinate the body's immune response, says virologist Andrew Picaz. MRNA is a good platform to try against HIV, but because the immunity that you need to protect from HIV is a little bit different from what you need from flu and COVID-19, it's really important to do the large-scale trials to really see how effective it could be. End quote. So to make sure that they get that right, it will probably take quite a bit longer, but... Dang, I just love following any news around mRNA vaccines because we really might be on the precipice of eradicating so many diseases and saving so many lives around the world. It's truly incredible stuff. So I feel like I could have guessed that we used fewer fossil fuels last year than in years previous, what with all the nature is healing memes honestly having a slight basis in reality, you know, less people commuting, less office buildings running at full capacity, etc. But I was still pretty floored to see this announcement today. America used fewer fossil fuels in 2020 than it has since 1991. And that 9% drop represents the largest annual decrease since the U.S. Energy Information Administration started keeping track in 1949, according to The Verge and a newly released port from the EIA. 
And the things I just listed were definite causes, but there was another cause, a darkly ironic one. We had such a hot winter here that energy demand for heating was slashed, and greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels hit a 40-year low, according to The Verge. So, like, good, but also yikes. And that downward trend is good, but it definitely won't last without concerted effort, seeing as everything is reopening here and people are traveling again. I mean, the good news is that renewable energy is also on the rise, and the International Energy Agency expects that momentum to continue. So it is all good news, but unfortunately kind of not enough. Just a good reminder of where we need to be putting our priorities, I guess. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.